0: You're listening to a sermon preached at Redeeming Life Church. If you have a Bible, which if you have a smartphone, you have access to a Bible, uh, start making your way to Romans chapter 6, looking at 14 verses this morning. Romans 6, verses 1 through 14. It's on page 1001 if you want to use one of those Bibles that are under the seat, and clearly with as many people in here, we do not have enough of those under the seat, so hopefully you brought a Bible with you. Um, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. I know it's a lot of scripture, and I know sometimes people go, oh, that's so much to read. But this is how we hear from God. (laughs) Pastor Josiah and I were talking about, uh, something that he saw from a friend of his. There's a church that has, you know, the lieutenant governor of the state speaking. And we saw some other where they had this guest person. He said, who's the guest person who's speaking at your church? And we just kind of laughed and said, hopefully it's not a guest. Hopefully it's the person who speaks at our church every week, and it's God from his word. Amen. And so that's my hope. So if you would read along with me these 14 verses, we'll let him have the first words, hopefully the middle words and the last as well. Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 14. What should we say then? Should we continue to sin so that grace may multiply? Absolutely not. How can we, who died in sin, still live in it? Or are you unaware that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we too may walk in the newness of life. For if we have been united with him in the likeness of his death, we will certainly also be in the likeness of his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him, so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless. So that we may no longer be enslaved to sin, since a person who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. Because we know that Christ, having been raised from the dead, will not die again. Death no longer rules over him. For the death he died. He died to sin once for all time. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you too, consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. And do not offer any parts of it to sin as weapons for unrighteousness. But those who are alive from the dead, offer yourselves to God and all parts of yourselves to God as weapons for righteousness. For sin will not rule over you, because you are not under the law, but under grace. This is God's word. Would you pray with me? Father, as we have now heard from your word, and as we have been singing praises that come from your word, and Lord, praying, I, I hope, from the prompts and the thoughts that you have given us from your word, I now ask that you would help us to understand your word, to hear it clearly, to be transformed by it, God, that we would not live to sin but live for you. Lord, help me to communicate this clearly as you would have it be spoken, help us to hear directly from you. And Father, it's my hope and my prayer that as we study this and as we hear that we don't walk out of here unchanged, but in fact that it would do something in us that it would change us, that it would bless us and benefit us, that this would be profitable for our hearing this morning. Answer our humble cries for your help to understand your word to us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. If you are here this morning and you're not a Christian, well, first of all, welcome. I'm, I'm, I am glad you're here. This is a good place to be. But if you are in here... And you are not a Christian, I I need to tell you, the message that I have this morning, it's really for Christians. Paul's text here is speaking to Christians. What we have here is for them. So stay, I mean, it'd be awkward if you just got up and left, so don't do that. But stay and listen in. But recognize that, that this is not really talking directly to you. This is not instruction for you. The instruction for you is know Jesus, get saved, repent, and believe. And so if you would like to talk with me at any point, let's get coffee or a soda. Let's make an appointment. Come find me in the lobby. Get the card. Call the church. Find us online. I would love to talk with you about that. But please understand, at this next few, you know, half an hour, we're going we're gonna to go a little different route here. Um. Also, for those of you who profess faith in Jesus, praise the Lord for that, but if you're not baptized, if you haven't been baptized, again, this message actually really isn't for you. Paul is going to draw on an illustration. He's going to heavily rely on an illustration, calling on his readers, us, the listeners of God's word to remember our baptism. And if you haven't been there, you're not going to be able to relate quite the same. So uh, I'm not going to beg you to get baptized. I am going to pray like crazy that God would stir in your heart and one day and say, I want to do that, and we'll set it all up and do it. If you'd like to get baptized, let us know. But I just want to let you know the text is also for those who've been baptized. Now, again, getting up and leaving would be awkward, so please stay and please hear, and let's just talk through this. That being said, with that out of the way, let's jump into what is happening here in Romans 6, 1 through 14. So Paul has been laboring to convince us that Christ is Lord, that he's the Savior, that we need to submit our lives to him. But now all of a sudden, he's he's made a change. He's shifted gears, and now instead of trying to persuade us to become Christians, he is pressing on us that the righteous shall live by faith. It's now not the dead being transferred to life in Christ. It's now actually living that life out in Christ. Because the Christian life is not just one of existence. We don't just merely survive. We don't just simply be. We actually live. And we live to the fullest. We flourish and we thrive in the life that God designed for us if we're willing to live in it. And that's now what he's going to call us to. He's going to beg us to live in that life to the fullest. And I know this is the case. He starts with a question in verse two. If you look down, you'll see it: "How can we who died to sin still live in it? If we've died to sin, why are we still why are we still in that? Why are we still dealing with those sorts of things?" I know that this—that's what this entire section we've read is about. That question. I'm a positive of it, if you will. Look with me, you'll see it. He starts with, how can we who died to sin live in it? And then when you go to verse 11, if you want to look at that, it says, so you too consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Is that not the question? He starts with the question, how do we do this? He wants us to think about it, and he ends with a command. The word consider here is an imperative And so it is a command, and the command is consider yourselves dead to sin and alive in Christ. How do we do this? Here's a bunch of info. Now here's the command. Everything between the two statements has to do with the topic of that question. How do we, Christians, alive in Jesus Christ, (laughs) live to the fullest in the life that God has designed for us in salvation? That's the topic. And this is why it's so important here. The topic doesn't end there. It's not that, and then he's going to move on. Paul's just getting ramped up. This is just the introduction. We're going to be seeing this sermon after sermon after sermon as we journey through this because he's still taking that topic through the next couple of chapters. Romans 6, 12 through 14, which we will look at here, continues to give instruction about not letting sin reign in us. It's it's an instruction. It's a command. Romans 6, 15 asks the question, should we sin because we're not under the law but under grace? Romans 7, 7 asks if the law itself is sinful. Romans seven fifteen gets into the battle and the temptation of sin. The topic he's dealing with is how a Christian relates to sin. It's a significant question. In fact, if you want to live out your life in a way that honors God and pleases God and gives glory to God and serves God, that has to be where you start. How do I, how do I relate now to sin? What does that look like for a Christian? He's pushing us. He's explaining to us in this 1 through 11 section, the sin has to be far removed from the Christian life. That we should be concerned about it. I go so far as to say we should be disgusted by it. We should join in God's thinking about sin and think the same way. Paul gets into his topic, really, with a kind of a silly question, or at least it seems silly, on the surface. Before, in chapter 5, he's kind of ending, he's saying, you know, the law, God's instruction for us to follow, can't save us. It only instead serves to show us our sin. It only compels us to, to desire a Savior. It exposes the sin, and so now the question is, should we be concerned about that and sin if when we do sin... It brings more attention to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We shouldn't be worried about sin. That's the silly question, right? That's, that's what he's opening with. He says it this way in verse 1. Should we continue to sin so that grace can multiply? That's what he's saying. What's his response? Not just no. You're all kind of like, mm, no. <laughs> that's not how verse 2 starts. He says, absolutely not. Not no, but oh no. <laughs> By no means, no way, no how, not ever. Absolutely not. And it might sound like a silly question. We might be laughing and chuckling. Ha <laughs> ha, you know, that's, that's so silly. But I meet a lot of Christians who live their life as if this question is their motto. It's their their. Way of operation for life. They sin without any concern and they enjoy the sin. And then they boast in their freedom of Christ. Ah, oh, cool. it's cool. It's fine. As if somehow they think sinning, enjoying the sin, and then boasting in the gospel is the best way to represent Jesus as an ambassador. The problem is they're not concerned with the things that concern God. They don't see that sin is as far from God as the East is from the West. And then they just enjoy it and celebrate it and then go, I can do whatever I want. They use this line of thinking as a license, as a permit to enjoy their life in any which way they want, whether it honors God or does not, and then use the name of Jesus as their get out of jail free card, as their excuse. Hey, it's cool. Yeah, whatever. No big deal. So how silly is the question really? We can find Christians who think the same very easily. So Paul is saying, look, should we do this or should we not do that? Absolutely not. We should not dig into sin. He asks the question then, how can we who died to sin, past tense, you're dead to sin, you died to sin, you're not dying to sin, you're dead to sin. How can we who are dead to sin still live in it? He says live, I think... It's not a better translation, certainly, but it would be a little more helpful if we thought the question was, how can we who died to sin still wallow in it? His answer is, we can't. We can't. It's a rhetorical question. And as Christians who are, who are being stirred towards Christ, redeemed and changed, we should want to live in the righteousness of Christ. We should not want to live in our old sin. In verse 6, he says, We know our old self was crucified with him so that the body ruled by sin might be rendered powerless so that we may no longer be enslaved to sin. Any desire for sin is a desire for enslavement to sin. You're just putting yourself in chains. When you think about desiring sin, think about being uh, enslaved to what you desire. And all that ends in death. Christians who have gone from death to life should not want to sin. They should be embarrassed that they make excuses about their sin. They shouldn't want to turn a blind eye to it because it should be repulsive to them. It should disgust them. It should cause them to weep. It should cause us to go, why do I do that? Lord, help me. I don't want that. It disgusts me now. Your old ways have died. They're dead. Your sin was put on Jesus. Another scripture we'll, we'll see, he nailed it to the cross, just like Christ was nailed to the cross. Your sin was put on Jesus, and then the crushing weight of judgment just killed Jesus and crushed your sin. And then that crushed sin was still on Jesus' body. And all of it was hauled to the tomb. But when Jesus came out alive, your sin stayed there, your sin is still dead. Jesus is alive. The sin that was in you that caused death is still in the grave and you're raised with Jesus. Your sin is dead and you should be dead to it. It should be dead to you. Stop going back to it. It stinks. It's rotten. It's wretched. It will do you no good. Stop going back. The sin in the grave. It's uh, it's like the the convicted felon spends his time in prison. He's then released, he's legally free, and he just wants to keep going back to the maximum security prison because he misses the, the sounds and the smells. And man, that prison cafeteria food, man. That's what we're doing when we go back to our sin. Christian is dead to sin, so he or she should have no love for it. It should hold no power over you. Dead things have no power. So if we get what Paul's teaching us here, like if we we go, okay, (laughs) that's the instruction we just read. When we get it, all the following instructions in chapter 6 and chapter 7 really ought to be very easy for us to go, yep. I'm going to go ahead and do that. We shouldn't have to balk or fight against these instructions or commands. They shouldn't offend us. They shouldn't bother us. So he's really wanting us to get this. It should be easy. And then in the passage we have here in this particular section, we have sort of two commands here in verses 12 through 14. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires. When you're letting sin reign, its desires are ruling. Don't give your body over to this. Your sin becomes a weapon for unrighteousness, a weapon against God, a weapon against his holiness. Instead, give yourself over to God and then you become a weapon for his glory. Those who are alive, it says, those who are alive from the dead, offer yourself to God. That's the instruction. Stop giving yourself to sin then the alternative is give yourself to God. It's one or the other. So stop giving yourself over to sin. Give yourself over to God. Okay, how? What are the, what are the, how do I do that? Your heart, as you're drawn closer to the Lord, should desire God more than sin. And sometimes you might have to go, wow, my flesh desires sin more than God, but I'm going to fight the flesh. Desire God's instruction for your life. Recognize that it is good. It's way better, far superior to any advice you can get from this world. Any temptation the world offers, God is better. Remember that. Serve, give yourself over to building God's kingdom rather than your own kingdom. Make Him famous, not yourself. Glorify Him, not yourself. Cherish God more than anything else. That doesn't mean you can't cherish other things, but you've got to cherish God more. So ask yourself, do I love this more than I love God? Didn't Jesus ask Peter that? Do you love these, possibly the fish, the disciples, this stuff more than you love me? Peter says, no. Jesus had to ask Peter that three times. Peter spent a lot of time learning and growing with Jesus, so maybe Jesus is going to have to ask us more than three times. But just keep saying, yeah, I'm going to love you, Jesus, more than whatever the blank is at the end of that question. Do you see what Paul's doing here? Do you see this text? When we understand, I mean, really get a hold of the reality that we are dead to sin and alive in Christ... The rest of everything that happens in this, the obedience and the following the Lord and worshiping, all all the rest is just the natural outpouring of one who is made alive in Christ because Christ lives in you. It just comes naturally. It's easy. Once we get the fact that we are dead to sin and it is in Christ who lives through us that motivates our life and our actions and our thoughts. When you get a hold of that, you'll just let him rule and reign. You'll let him do what he does best. And you'll be blessed because of it. Now, to make his point, Paul goes to an illustration. He's appealing to a very significant illustration. It's of baptism. Our baptism. Verse 3, Are you aware that all of us who were baptized into Christ, and he goes on, and all of us who were baptized into Christ, this is now going to be a running illustration throughout this section. He's appealing to this. And then he says, you know, those who were baptized into his death were, always, were also baptized into the newness of life. That's verse 4. Because Paul is turning to baptism and he sees it. That, that helps the reader understand and how the Christian can relate to sin can be seen in something we see in our baptism and it's an illustration. I'm going to do the same. I'm going to spend a good chunk of my time on this topic. If you would turn with me though, to get a handle on baptism, if you would turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 3, we're going to look at verses 18 through 22. It's on page 1077. If you're using that little hardback pew Bible, that red Bible somewhere around you in a seat uh, shelf. 1 Peter 3, 18-22. Peter, writing to the church, inspired by God, says, For Christ also suffered for sin once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring you to God. He was put to death in the flesh, but made alive by the Spirit in which he also went and made proclamation to the spirits in prison who in the past were disobedient when God patiently waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared in it excuse in it a few that is eight people were saved through water now key into this baptism which corresponds to this, now saves you. Not as the removal of dirt from the body, but the pledge of a good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with the angels' authorities and the powers subject to him. There's a lot here. I'm only going to focus on one thing. You see it in verse 21. It says, baptism corresponds to... This. What is this referring to? What does baptism correspond to? Is it Noah? Is it the flood? Saved through water? Is it God working to save those eight people? Yes, all of that, but more. It says baptism, which corresponds to this now, saves you. And then we just stop there. Some people stop there and don't keep reading at all. Like, oh, baptism is what saves you. Baptism is not what saves you. Jesus Christ saves you. Baptism is something else. That's why we're talking about it. But if we were to keep reading, we discover there's a parenthetical statement. It doesn't end there. If we keep, see, we, we stop reading and we, so we read the baptism ceremony into that statement. Baptism corresponds to this, and, and when you're going into the water, coming out of the water, and we have the tub set up, or maybe it's a church that has like a bath. We think of the ceremony, and we read the ceremony into this, but that's not what Paul's talking about. The parenthetical statement, if we keep reading, makes it clear. Here's what it says in the parenthetical statement. It shows us he's talking about something bigger. Peter says, it is not the removal of dirt from the body. This isn't something like this isn't just a plunge in the water to make you clean. It's not that. OK, What is it? It is a pledge of good conscience toward God through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Huh What is baptism? Well, in this case, it's a pledge. It's a pledge. It's a, it's a statement. Peter is looking at the larger meaning of baptism here, and that's what he's referring to, not the ceremony, but what's going on uh, that, that makes that ceremony a symbol. It's a pledge of sorts. It's a public statement. He's saying it's a profession proclaiming that Jesus is the Lord of your life. And it's that that saves you. The profession that Jesus is the Lord of God, surrendering yourself to Him, a pledge of good conscience in the Lord, not your ways, but His ways. And then the the ceremony becomes a sort of outward working. Even the pledge itself that you're speaking is an outward working of what Jesus has already done in you when you went from dead to living, dying with him, being raised with him. It is Jesus working in you that causes you to make a public proclamation. It is Jesus working in you that causes you to be a part of that ceremony into the water and up out of the water. You see, baptism comes as a response to hearing the Word of God. It's a response, it's a surrendering to the truth when we hear the truth, and saying, that's right, and my way's wrong. It's a belief and it's a repentance. Let me show you if I can. Peter preached the word of God and called all the people to repent in Acts chapter 2. He said, Believe, repent. He made this proclamation of who God was. This is Jesus. You killed him. What do we do? Believe and repent. And then Acts 2, 41 says, so those who accepted his message were baptized. Past tense. They heard, they accepted, they were baptized. The same thing happens after the people heard Philip preach. Philip preaches the word in Acts chapter eight. And at the conclusion of that sermon, it says this in 8, 12. But when they believed Philip, not before they believed him, when they believed Philip as he proclaimed the good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. Baptism is a response, it's a a proclamation, it's a making a pledge of hearing the truth and responding to God's message to you. And we can't respond favorably unless God has done a mighty work in our hearts. We don't will ourselves into this. It's God's will that we move into that. And then baptism, the ceremony, the water, the act of that picture becomes something else. What are we witnessing when we see somebody get baptized? What are we seeing? Or let me put it this way. What is a, a person saying when they engage in the act of Water baptism. I keep pointing over here because this is where we set the tub up. I guess I could point over here. I could point back here. This back here actually doesn't work. It leaks. A broken heater doesn't work. This over here, when we set it up, works. What is a person saying when they go into the water, when they come out of the water, when they make this proclamation? In the Old Testament, circumcision was a sign of the Old Covenant. In the New Testament, true belief is a sign of the New Covenant. So baptism is an outward proclamation of an inward work that Jesus has done that has resulted in true belief. Colossians 2, verses 11 through 13 say this. You were also circumcised. I think Can we put that up on the screen? Do we have that? Or you can go there. Colossians 2, 11 through 13. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands, by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ when you were buried with him in baptism in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. And when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us All our trespasses. I'm just going to read it through one more time a little quicker. You were also circumcised in him with a circumcision not done with hands by putting off the body of flesh in the circumcision of Christ. When you were buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him, through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, he made you alive with him and forgave us all our trespasses. Baptism is a picture of being buried, going down into the water, and being raised and coming up out of the water. It's a picture of death going down, coming back up in Christ. It's not how you join a covenant community or join a church. It's an outward proclamation of an inward work Jesus has done in you. You were dead in sin. And you were made alive in Christ. So now coming back to Paul's point in Romans chapter 3. He's asking the reader to remember his or her baptism. He's saying, look, should we keep on sinning or how do we live in Christ? He says, remember your baptism. Why? It's like, remember going down into the water. Yeah, I remember that. Remember thinking about going down into the grave. I remember that too. Man, on that day, I remember thinking about dying to your sin, thinking about your mortality and your death, and thinking about your sin. Man, you remember when you were down under the water, you might have had that brief moment of thinking, and maybe beforehand, man, I should have just been left there. I should have been left under the waters. I should have been left in the grave. I, just me and my sin. That's where I should have been. I mean, I, I know that I deserved that. That would have been fair. That would have been right. And, I, and maybe you remember when you were giving a testimony, sharing your confession. You might have even said that. man, I deserved this. But man, and everyone heard it, right? So you're thinking back to that day going, yeah, that, that's, that's what we were thinking about. That's what we were talking about. You and your sin just lying there together in death. That glorious moment, coming up out of the water, that moment, thinking about being raised to the newness of life with Jesus. I should have stayed, but yet he raised me up. What a wonderful reminder. He saved me. He changed me. How glorious that is. Is there any way? Is there any way on that day you were thinking, man, I should run out and sin so more people can see how great this is? Who was thinking that? If you're like me, you're like, how do I go through the rest of my life never sinning? Paul saying, remember that day. Remember that moment with your baptism. There's no way you wanted to run out and do that. You're just so grateful Jesus saved you. Man, I was a wretch. I didn't deserve any of this. But now I'm alive in him, and I have this new, flourishing, wonderful life in the grace that Jesus Christ has given me. I think when we go through our Christian life for a while, sometimes we forget that. Paul said, remember back to the day you were baptized. You wanted to tell the world, Christ saved me and I didn't deserve it. You wanted to make a proclamation to your church. I'm all in. I'm dead to my sin. I'm alive. You wanted your brothers and sisters to know. You wanted the world to know. Baptism is not how you enter a covenant community or how you enter a church. It's just not. It's not just a thing you do to kind of wash away your sins and you hope you never sin after that. It's not that either. Baptism is a way to proclaim to the world that you believe the gospel and that you've made that pledge to say, I am dead to my sin. It will not entice me. It will not enslave me. It has no power over me because I am alive in Jesus Christ. That's what baptism is. It's, it's like a funeral and a birthday in the same few moments. And that's how it should feel because that's really what it represents. That's what it symbolizes. Did you know in the early Baptist churches, I love this, I, the early Baptist churches, when they built the church, we're talking like 16th and 17th century, when they built the church, do you know where the baptistry was? It was in the ground, either in front of or under the pulpit, Right? down, I mean, they dug down into the foundation. They built it right in, or sometimes they actually put it right out in between, in between the seats and the rows, in the ground. So you walk on that all the time. The, the preacher preaches standing on it all the time, and then when they want to do a baptism, they got to pull all the slats away, fill that sarcophagus full of water to put you down into it and pull you back up. It wasn't elevated up on the wall. It was in the ground like a grave. Man, that sure paints a different picture, doesn't it? That's amazing. <laughs> That's how they saw that. That's how we should see that. That's what Paul is drawing on here. His question for us is how can we who died to sin still live in it? Man, we that should be that should just Shock us that that would even be a question. We can't. His point is that if you're a Christian, you need to see yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. That's how you should see yourself every day. That's how you should see sin. That's how you should see Christ. This should shape you. You should see yourself dead to sin and alive in Christ. Do you? Do you really? Think about the sin that you still secretly seek out here and there. You'd be so embarrassed if we you know, put it up on a screen and we all looked at you for the sin that you kind of enjoy and kind of like. And like, oh, everybody needs their little vices, right? Think about that sin right now. Think about the sin that maybe you still just dabble in here and there and you make excuses about. Think about the sin that you're not really fighting very hard against. Eh, kind of know. maybe not. Think about that sin. This is the stuff that comes up over and over and over again. Think about the reoccurring sin in your life. Now, if I've done my job, you have something in your head right now. And it's up to you. You can say, ah, whatever, I'm not going to play this game, Pastor. I'm not asking you to tell anybody. This is just you and God. I hope you're having a conversation right now between you and God. Think about that sin. Is it covetousness? Maybe you're just stealing a little bit here and there at work. They won't miss it. Gossip? Maybe you're quick-tempered and quarrelsome. We all have these things. Maybe it's pride. Maybe it's laziness. It's lust and lustful eyes and purity in that way. Maybe you're not leading well in your home. Maybe you're not discipling your kids up in the ways of the Lord. And I promise, if you're not, the world is. If you're not exercising a a catechism in your home, the world is catechizing them to say and, and champion all the things of the world. Maybe you're not doing a good job in your home with your children. Maybe you have a profound love of money that trumps your love of God. Steals and robs your time. You think about money more than you think about the Lord. Maybe you're not giving God the attention he deserves. Maybe you're not giving him time because there's too many other things that you just need to see or need to do. Maybe you're not cherishing God more than you're cherishing other things. You're not giving God your affection. The Bible often uses the term prostitution for that when you whore your affections out to another. Maybe that's what you're struggling with. Think about that sin. It's the stuff that just wants to drag you back into the grave, it's enslaving you. It's a chain around your ankle and around your wrist, and around your waist, and it's just dragging you back to death. Think about that. Put it in your head. Paul's point here is that we see that we're dead to it. What would change if you put that sin back in the grave where it belongs? What would change in your life for Christ? How would you living for Christ look different if you didn't have the shackles everywhere you went? How would your life be more righteous if you just let that go? If you let Jesus mortify it, nail it to the cross, as Colossians 2.14 says. What if you just let it go? "Ah, and Stop taking it back down off the crucifix and let it die. What would happen in your life? If you let it stay in the grave and you didn't put a monument or memorial there to go back and visit it. If truly you let it be as far as the east is from the west, the bottom of the sea, all the, the things that God says our Savior has done to sin. What would look different in your life if you really believed it, lived it? If you were disgusted by your sin, repulsed by your sin, you remembered your baptism when you went into the grave. Oh, how I wish that was right in the floor or outside in the yard. Why are they digging a six-foot hole in the front yard of the church? Baptism Sunday! Baptism Sunday! What would change if you actually believed this truth from God that as a Christian you are dead to sin and alive in Jesus Christ? How might your life reflect the life of Jesus with greater clarity and greater beauty if you lived like you really believed this? Let's pray. God, I thank you for your inspired word through this apostle that is hard to hear. God, I know, I know that each and every one of us has sin we are battling. I ask that you would give us power through Jesus Christ to see it die. Lord, give us power to live as if we truly are dead to sin, that we would see daily victory over these complications and temptations and and lustful issues towards something that you would have us not love. God, I'm, I'm, I'm asking that you, Lord, would continually remind all of us that we are dead to that sin. And when the temptation comes, say, no, it's death. I'm not going back to the maximum security prison. I'm not going back to the grave. I'm going to live my life. I'm going to flourish in my life. I'm going, to, I'm going to walk in the newness of Jesus Christ because that is what God intends for me. Lord, remind us of this daily. Lord, let us turn to your word and see it daily. Let us remember the work you did on the cross to kill the sin. Let us celebrate that and let us worship you because of it. And Lord, let us continue to put our faith and trust in you just like we did on the day we were baptized but then more and more and more as we grow every day into your son's likeness. Father, thank you for the transforming work of the gospel and for the power that you are doing even today. Give us victory this week, next week. Lord, so that you would be glorified in us and through us for you. It's in Jesus' name I I pray all this. Amen. We'd love to have you as our guest. For more information, visit RedeemingLifeUtah.org.